Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Stephen Freed, author of Rush, a biography of Benjamin Rush. Stephen Freed, author of Rush, the biography of Benjamin Rush. Why'd you pick Benjamin Rush? Well, Benjamin Rush is a great character, but honestly, I live down the street from the revolution. And when I started writing historical books, I, I was a magazine writer for many years, and I started writing historical books. Um, I figured, you know, I lived down the street from uh, all these things. I knew very little about them except, you know, Benjamin Franklin impersonators and uh, the uh, carriages that stop cars um, trying to get across Fifth Street. And so I, w I had been looking for some time for a way to write about the American Revolution that would be approachable to me, interesting to me. I originally learned about Rush because I write a lot about mental health. Uh, and Rush is considered the founding father of American psychiatry and American psychology. But when you ask psychiatrists and psychologists why that is, they kind of look at you mystified. They just know that his picture used to be on the, all the tote bags at the American Psychiatric Association convention. I have one of those in my office. So I, I just started looking into Rush as a possible character. And I realized, first of all, uh, he hadn't been written about very much. And what had been written, you wouldn't really read on purpose. Um, he also was an amazing character to, to talk about the revolutionary period because he was younger than everybody else. So you view the world of the revolution first through a young man who's sort of trying to get to know John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, later becomes one of them, signs the declaration, and then becomes close friends with all of them. And he lived uh, until 1813, so he basically is a window through uh, the, all the periods, through the Declaration of Independence, through the creating of the Constitution, he was on the battlefields of the Revolutionary War, and Philadelphia was the U.S. capital from 1790 to 1800, and that was his time. Uh, and his son ended up be, being in the U.S. government and being the U.S. government's mouthpiece for the War of 1812. So he really saw a lot of things. A lot of what works in these books is not only that the character is great, but that the character allows you to see parts of history that you don't know that well. And Rush was perfect for that. The other thing that was very clear and I found fascinating and didn't know why was that it was obvious that his story had been suppressed. And that while when he died, the newspapers referred to his death as being as important as the death of Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, we certainly don't think about that today. And so I was curious why his story had been, um, wasn't as well known. And it turned out that it had been deliberately suppressed, uh, in part because he was sort of the founder who knew too much. So he was very close friends with Adams and Jefferson and sort of frenemies with George Washington. He also served as their doctor because he was a physician. So they were very open with him in their letters especially. And when Rush died, both Adams and Jefferson immediately went to the family and said, I would like to make sure that the letters that I've been sending to Benjamin Rush for the last 20 years, that nobody sees them. Because they're unbelievably personal. They shared their deepest feelings about what had happened in America, about their health and their family's health, about their feelings about religion. And uh, they really wanted to make sure that that material didn't get out. There was also an autobiography Rush had written that was also suppressed. I don't know that they realized it would be suppressed for so long. Is it, it still exists? It yeah, yeah, yeah. All this stuff still exists. It only started, so Rush died in 1813. These letters and the autobiography were basically first seen by the public in the late 1940s. And they haven't really st still even all been gone through and worked through 
we dealt with some of them. We found some letters and some writings that didn't exist before, but we also processed a lot of these materials that came out later and um, just to, to piece together not only a, a story of a fascinating man and his amazing family and all the people that he gets you to. It's almost like with Rush, you have the idea that there was a camera running during the entire American Revolution and no one ever processed the film. Um, How did you happen to be the one to come across these letters? Well, some of the letters, I mean, look, some of these letters were, uh, were sold at auction in the 1940s and they just, you know, some of them were published and some of them weren't. Uh, one of the things that I was very lucky, the, the historian who was most obsessed with Benjamin Rush uh, was a gentleman named Lyman Butterfield, who uh, some of your uh, viewers may know because he was the editor of the, of the Adams Letters for many years during the 20th century. He edited the letters of Benjamin Rush. He then got hired to edit the John Adams Letters, a much bigger project, and he never came back to Rush, but he had always wanted to write a biography of him, and I went to his papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society and found that he had actually gotten pretty far and no one had ever seen what he had done because when he died they just boxed the stuff up and uh, the people from Mass Historical said no one had ever asked to see his Rush papers. And I actually found another person who had written a biography, one of the leading uh, historians of psychiatry um, at Weill Cornell Medical Center who had also been working on a biography of Rush uh, when he dropped dead. So the fact that you're holding my biography and I'm still alive <laughs> is a pretty good thing. Uh, but So there had been projects that people had done that had not been finished and also because Rush is a medical person and medicine changes, uh, especially psychiatry, um, so psychiatry had different ideas in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Rush was kind of an early biological psychiatrist. His idea was that mental illness and addiction were medical problems, and he was trying to convince people that these were not problems of the failure of religious belief, they were not failure of will, they were medical problems. In, in mental health and addiction advocacy, we are still trying to convince some people of that. But his biological approach to that was not popular during much of the 20th century. So as, as it became clear that his ideas were the earliest iterations of what we now take for granted in terms of uh, medical treatment and psychological treatment of mental illness and addiction, I think it was clear that Rush's ideas were more timeless than people had realized. When you look at the Benjamin Rush as a physician, um, what are the things that he was ahead of his time on and what are the things that he just got dead wrong? Well, first of all, the, they had very few treatments that time for anything. You know, bloodletting and purging um, and cold compresses and hot compresses uh, and bark, Peruvian bark, were the treatments for almost everything. So they knew some basic anatomy. The only system of the body they knew much about was blood because they could feel it. So Rush was obsessed with pulse because it was one of the only things that he could feel without killing somebody and, and, and change by giving them something. So I think that and Rush was also a teacher, but he wasn't teaching that much that wasn't just common medicine at the time. Medicine at the time was very basic at that time. So I think that what he got wrong was that everything that they did, they didn't know then. I mean, they didn't know about infection. They didn't know about any of those things. And since he was, keep in mind, Rush was the most powerful teacher of medicine in America. He, when he was a young doctor, he was one of the first professors at the first medical school in America uh, here in Philadelphia. And he taught the medicine of the day. And the medicine of the day isn't, didn't do that well. We don't, we don't bloodlet people anymore. We don't purge them for everything anymore. His ideas, though, are more timeless. And it's not surprising because medical education and medical thought about how to train doctors is, is something that can be more timeless than, than the research at the time. So Rush, um, his teaching is, is really interesting. He wrote introductory lectures every year at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School explaining how doctors should learn, how they should keep up with 
advancements, how they should deal with their patients, how their patients should deal with them. Um, really stuff that you'd read today and find very interesting. And the thing that he was most ahead of his time on, or, or timeless, was that he was very clear that mental illness was not a religious issue. And so, of course, medicine was trying to separate from religion at that time anyway. And people often forget that the revolution was not only a revolution against the king, but it was a revolution against a state church. And so Rush was interesting. He was a Christian. He was a scientist. He was not a Christian scientist. And he was forever trying to balance the challenges of science and religion and what their place would be in America. And that's a key issue when, you're, when you talk about mental illness uh, and especially in addiction because there's so much religious language attached to them. I want to read something in here that uh, is, no, we're not going chronologically, but it, when Pennsylvania was having its state constitutional convention in 1776, the conference proposed that anyone who wanted to be a candidate for the Pennsylvania Constitutional uh, Convention would have to swear a religious oath, a Christian oath. And Rush was vehemently opposed to that. And uh, he says, uh, no one whose uh, morals are good should be exempted. And you say it was uh, one of the first, if not the first, public statements in the American debate on separation of church and state. Right. Rush was very clear about his own religion and very clear about the fact that in America, everybody was going to be free to follow whatever religion they wanted or whatever whatever they didn't want to have religion and that the whole point of American religious freedom was that so even though a part of him would have liked that everybody had the same religious beliefs as him I think most people think the world would be easier if that was the case what was his religious belief he was second Presbyterian so in Philadelphia that meant that he felt that he was being discriminated against by first Presbyterian Quaker and the Church of England and he talked in his career about how difficult it was to build a business, especially a medical practice, when you, when you were the wrong religion. Uh, so for that reason, he was very open to people's religious beliefs. He also had a lot of mentors like Franklin, like William Cullen, who were considered deists, who didn't believe in organized religion. He had to get his head around the idea of these people who he considered to be geniuses, the great thinkers of medicine and other areas, um, didn't share his religious beliefs. So he was a guy who just talked about, to people about religion all the time. His letters back and forth with Jefferson about religion are utterly fascinating. And they are the reason that Jefferson later published the Jefferson Bible. The Jefferson Bible was something that Rush and Jefferson talked about for years because Jefferson had an idea that, um, he had ideas that organized religion was a really bad thing to have power uh, against the federal government. He was very worried that that would be the case. Uh, at the same time, he had an idea that that Jesus was a real person and that we should be reading about Jesus's life, but that everything that was added to Jesus's life and all the miracles, that was added later. And so Rush was fascinated by this and he just said, you should write about this. I mean, that's the way Rush was. It's not surprising that Rush encouraged and convinced Thomas Paine to write Common Sense and that he edited Common Sense. He was not only a writer himself, but he wanted the people that he thought were interesting to write. So he asked Jefferson to write this. Jefferson never got around to it. When he died, when Rush died, the first thing Adam said was, you always promised Rush that you were going to write about your religious beliefs so that people could understand them. And Adam stayed on him for years, still saying, you promised Rush you would do this. And that's eventually how the Jefferson Bible was published. So Rush had this interesting impact on people. He was a fascinating writer himself and a great thinker, also very annoying sometimes. Uh, you know, he bugged people. He, you know, was... Um, he was an inconvenient truth teller in, in many situations, but he also very much believed in the American spirit. He believed that people should express themselves. He was always encouraging his students and his fellow founding fathers to sit down, write, and make your ideas known. You say that he wrote an essay uh, against the tea tax. 
that was read in Boston prior to the Boston Tea Party. Well, he was part of the group that wrote the proclamation. See, um, the, the cities that the tea was coming to, it was coming to Boston, it was coming to New York, it was coming to Philadelphia. Um, the Philadelphians wrote the first proclamation, and what Rush was very young, in his early, his, his mid-twenties at this point, a bunch of older people brought him in because he was known as a smart young writer and a, and a mentee of Franklin's. So they met at the London Coffee House, and they sat down and they wrote out a proclamation uh, against the tea coming into this country. And they published it in the paper, and um, Samuel Adams and the others in Boston who were having similar meetings, when they saw the proclamation, they said, that's a good proclamation. We don't need to write another proclamation. We'll just take the Philadelphia one and we'll put that in our newspapers and that'll be our proclamation too. That was the proclamation that led to the Boston Tea Party. The Philadelphia Tea Party didn't happen because after what happened in Boston, when the tea got to Philadelphia, the, the captain just turned around and left. The, the proclamation was written in London? No, at the London Coffee House in Philadelphia. Ah. The London Coffee House in Philadelphia at the corner of Front and Market was the main meeting place where people would go to talk about politics. Um, I, I, ironically, it was a place where we talked about revolutionary politics and new democratic ideas. And the sad truth is, is that it was also outside where they had the slave auctions. So it was a place where all politics intersected um, in Philadelphia. And, and keep in mind, Philadelphia was the center of American politics at this time. Most important city in the country, the biggest city, the most important financial city in the country, uh, which is why it was the place where the Constitution was written, why the Declaration was done here. You say that he was a bright young man and he, he graduated from the College of New Jersey at age 14? Yes, what well, became Princeton. He was... Um, was that unusual at the time? Or I think he was very, very smart. It was funny, Rush was... Um, if you see pictures of Rush, he had a very big forehead. And people used to comment that it seemed like ideas were sort of pushing their way out of his head. There were so many of them. He uh, went to school early. His parents were not wealthy. His father died when he was five. He was a blacksmith. His mother got the money together to send him to private school. And he did so well at that private school, which had ties to the College of New Jersey, now Princeton, that he was sent to Princeton uh, as a junior. He was accepted as a junior. He finished school in one year. And then he um, apprenticed as a doctor. Uh, for several years in Philadelphia and then decided since there were there was no medical education in Philadelphia that he would go uh, to Edinburgh to study because that was the great medical school of the time. But he's a Princeton grad and very much part of the history of Princeton. Uh, his brother went to Princeton, his kids went to Princeton, and uh, even though he is associated with many other colleges, obviously he taught at what became the University of Pennsylvania, was the leading uh, philo philosophical scholar there for many, many years, and he founded Dickinson College, and he founded what became Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, if you're a Princeton person, you, you claim Rush. Where did he get his medical education? Well, at that time, you apprenticed uh, because there was no medical school in America if you were an American doctor. So, and you, there was no licensure, so if you apprenticed with a doctor for long enough, you could then say you were a doctor. Uh, and that's what many, many American doctors did. But the smartest people, the people of means, uh, went to the best medical schools in Europe and then came back. And the University of Edinburgh at that time was the top medical school. So Rush somehow got the money together. I think his mother really paid for it. And um, he went there and had this amazing experience, which is it's such a wonderful part of his story because he, he actually met Benjamin Franklin, who lived down the street from him, there. Because Franklin was in London most of the time. So he met Franklin while he was in London. He met many of the top thinkers of the day. Franklin provided him with letters of introduction. Imagine going to, to uh, 
boarding school and then college and reading all the great living writers and then going to Europe and having Benjamin Franklin sort of give you letters of introduction so you could have dinner with them. The club. He, he, right, uh, so he's there with Samuel Johnson and all these people talking about this stuff. I mean, some of these people are doctors who became writers and they, uh, you know, Rush was just sort of sitting there fascinated and he wrote journals, which we have. They're handwritten journals that he wrote while he was in Edinburgh, uh, while he was in London, and then while he was in Paris, um, basically making this grand tour of all these different people, building up his medical education, uh, getting his first ideas about revolution from the people in England who were uh, raising the question of whether there should be uh, revolt against the king, and um, also falling in love a lot. Rush was um, told by his mother when she paid for his education that he couldn't marry until he was 30. Uh, because she wanted to get him to be far enough in his career that he could help take care of the rest of the family. You say in the book his love life was elusive. Well, his love life was elusive, but it's also, if you think of it, what other founding fathers do we know about all their girlfriends before the people that they married? Since Rush was 30 when he married, and we have lots of his love letters to the people that he decided not to marry because his family told him he couldn't, it actually creates a very fascinating uh, backstory, and it also lets you see these people three-dimensionally. What I loved about Rush was that you could see him as a man, you could see his relationship with his wife and with his kids in a much more transparent way than I think is available to a lot of the other founding fathers. I mean, Rush is the guy who stayed home, right? He came back, he had his whole life in Philadelphia, he went home and had dinner with his family every night because that was his choice. It's actually these fascinating letters between Rush and Adams when Adams returns from Europe. Uh, before, right when the government's being started in the 17, late 1780s. And he's saying to Rush, you know, you took the path of staying home and being with your family, and I left my wife, and I left most of my kids, and I've been away for all this time. And he felt kind of guilty about that. He worried what kind of impact that would have. And Rush wrote back, and he, li he liked that Adams was telling him that. He also pointed out, here's what's going on in my house right now. And he sort of takes his eyes around in the camera and says, my wife's sitting across to me from me, and she's reading this book and my oldest son is sitting in the other room and he's reading this book and my next son is reading this book. Um, so he was really taken and happy that he had been able to have that kind of relationship with his family and we don't get that kind of detail, that kind of intergenerational detail about many founding fathers. Why did he join the rebellion? He was uh, outraged, I mean he was an independent minded person. I think that it was not a big leap for him. He was also much younger than these people so it seemed very obvious to him you know, when a lot of these businessmen, when the taxes were put on them, they were people in business. They were losing money. It was secondarily theoretical to him. To Rush, he was an, you know, he was an angry young man. He had gotten some of these ideas when he was at medical school, when he was in, in England, and it seemed very obvious to him. The only challenge was what it was going to cost him in his business. Uh, he wrote early on a, a pamphlet uh, to... Uh, an abolitionist pamphlet encouraged on by Anthony Benizet, the leading abolitionist of the day, who thought it was interesting that a doctor would write an abolitionist pamphlet to talk about the races from a medical point of view. So Rush's pamphlet, which is fascinating, um, not only talks about why there shouldn't be slavery, but also talks very directly about why white people should not be prejudiced against black people, whether they are enslaved or not, because he treated black people and they were the same as white people. And if people didn't understand that, he was a doctor and he was here to tell them that. That was a shocking idea then. He reported losing almost half of his business uh, because of that, even though he didn't sign it, but he let people know that he had written it. And uh, so he was willing to put his ideas out there. And we didn't have like scientific journals at this time. When you wrote something like this, it was in the paper or it was in a pamphlet. And the pamphleting was a new kind of publishing. And it was an entrepreneurial thing. You wrote a pamphlet, somebody printed it up, 
You sold it. You make mo you made money. Early blogs. Uh, well, less so because blogs gets hits. I mean, this is really like here's my pamphlet. Give me a dollar. And um, like when when Rush's friends, like when Jefferson went overseas, Rush would send him over with pamphlets. And after he published books, he would send them over with books. I mean, publishing itself was sort of hand to mouth, but it's interesting. So, I mean, Common Sense was the most powerful pamphlet, right? But it was it was part of a publishing trend at that time. Um, that was very much a, a medium that Rush was interested in. But he also would just write things for the newspaper. If he wrote letters that he thought were particularly interesting, he would give them to the newspaper. And some of these things became extremely controversial, the first one being his writing about abolition. Uh, he also wrote, uh, obviously, the proclamation having to do with the tea tax, his writings having to do with separation of church and state, um, and later to make sure that people paid attention to inequalities in the way that women were treated, inequalities in the way African Americans were treated in general, uh, the re a lot of different issues. He was, he's really, if you think today about what the, all the issues the young people are interested in about social justice, you want to know the first of the founding fathers who were all about those issues, it was Benjamin Rush from the time he was, the earliest time that he was a writer and all through his life. What was his day job? Well, his day job was being a doctor. Uh, he he treated patients. Private practice. He had his own. Well, practice. keep in mind that you know at this time all almost all medicine was practiced in the home. Pennsylvania Hospital was the first hospital. It was in Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania Hospital was only for poor people who couldn't be treated at home, who had an illness that needed to be treated and couldn't be treated at home. Except for the people who were mentally ill, it was only for people who were indigent. Um, so you went to people's houses. It was all house calls. Rush, you know, had a little. Uh, you know, one-seat thing with a horse that he would go to people's houses, and some of them could pay him, and some of them couldn't, and that was his practice. He later became um, a professor of chemistry, originally at the medical school. Later, uh, when his mentors passed away, he became the most powerful professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania when Penn started being Penn in the early 1790s, and so he was a teacher. So he taught, he taught the first 3,000 doctors in America how to be doctors. And so he was, um, besides all his political writing, which is often what we focus on, he wrote many medical papers. And he did, gave you know, long lectures every year about uh, medical practice and uh, how to be a doctor, how to keep learning, how to take care of patients. So he had many, many protégés. Part of the reason there's so many portraits of Benjamin Rush, and they're all copies of the same two portraits, is because when Rush died, so many doctors who, who felt that they owed their lives to him wanted a portrait of Rush, that the painters who had painted Rush were increasingly commissioned to churn out more and more copies of the portraits of him so doctors could have them in their offices. There's a lot of little stories in your book, and I want to, to jump around and, and cover some of them. You, you say at, at one point when he was uh, studying with Dr. Shippen in Philadelphia. That's, yes. That, is that the, the Peggy Shippen family? The it is. The wife of Benjamin, uh, of uh, Benedict Arnold. Yes. Um, small world. He did not Looks take, like this are all about small worlds. <laughs> he did not take this one course on obstetrics and midwifery, which was considered scandalous because for the first time in America, Shippen was teaching the art of delivering babies to men, training as surgeons as well as to female midwives. So childbirthing was exclusively women. Absolutely. You know, this was the earliest time of medical education, and Rush found himself caught between two powerful professors, William Shippen, who was originally his friend, and John Morgan, who was a friend of Shippen's. They both gone to school together. They both came back. And then when Morgan started the, the medical school in Philadelphia and uh, Shippen felt that they should have started it together, they began fighting against each other. And so Rush grew up with his two mentors hating each other's guts. 
and always having to choose between them. And, and in an endless, I mean, this is, it trained him for what it was going to be like to be in American business and to deal with all the personalities of the founding fathers. And it bled over into the revolution because, of course, John Morgan and William Shippen were the two doctors who ran George Washington's medical service during most of the war. They continued to hate each other during that. Jeff uh, Washington would often comment about how unbelievable it was that the top doctors in the country were such jerks to each other and seemed to care so little about how it impacted care. But Rush found himself in the middle of this. He eventually had to choose one. He chose Morgan, and he and Shippen became lifelong enemies after that. And uh, so these kinds of relationships are the kinds of things that you need to know about if you want to see how people really dealt with it. And one of the things that I will say I found is that people have paid less attention to the relationships in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania because the story of the revolution is often told through the eyes of Massachusetts, through the eyes of Virginia, and since the Hamilton musical, a little bit more through the eyes of New York. But you know, you got to always keep in mind, this stuff all happened here. Pennsylvania politics and Philadelphia politics were much more important than I think people really realize in these stories. And so I wanted to tell this through the eyes of a Pennsylvanian, through the eyes of a Philadelphian, and constantly say to people, you know, these people from Virginia, Massachusetts were coming here to do this. And the issues of Pennsylvania politics, some of which have been lost, like the one you brought up before about separation of church and state, um, they also had a, a con uh, their constitution was excessively democratic in many people's ideas. It was Thomas Paine's idea, there be no meritocracy, and we have complete democracy, that if the people just want to vote somebody out, they should be able to vote them out. Uh, we're talking with these, about these same issues today, about democracy versus democracy. And Rush and Adams were very concerned that I mean, some of the, one of the state's constitutions was going to become the model for the federal constitution. And there were only a handful of powerful states, Pennsylvania being one of them. And they were very concerned that this excessively democratic uh, constitution, which had no strong executive, where you could take people off the Supreme Court, you know, in a heartbeat, was, could end up being embraced. So that stuff we don't pay attention to enough, but it actually is so much part of the drama of both the Declaration of Independence, which Pennsylvania was the last holdout state, Rush ended up having to sign when John Dickinson wouldn't sign, and was, was a state whose constitution many people were worried would become a model for the federal constitution and did not. So understanding Pennsylvania politics, how they fit into all this, again, I feel like I'm just bringing our state back into the story as it was at the time, because when you read the stories at the time, it's very clear what role Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and those people had in the entire revolutionary story. I want to read one more thing that was going on in Philadelphia at the time, and that's uh, Elizabeth Betsy Graham, who had uh, Colonial America's first literary salon. And it was co-ed. And it was, a, yes, a, along with a, a younger generation of women, along with their male friends who appreciated this uniquely co-ed salon. What would that have been like? That, well, you know, there were Rush women writers involved. in Philadelphia. Betsy Graham Ferguson, who was a very close friend of Rush's, was one of them. Her best friend from growing up, uh, Annis Boudinot Stockton, who was married to Richard Stockton, the most powerful lawyer in New Jersey, was another one. She was the first published female poet, American-born, in the country. Their daughter, Julia, was Rush's wife. Um, so Rush married the daughter of somebody whose wife was really, much, whose mom was from a literary tradition. He had, when he was in Europe, commented on how how different women were, the different that in the, in Europe women's ideas mattered, and uh, he wanted to be with somebody whose ideas mattered, um, and so he surrounded himself with people like Betsy Graham Ferguson, who I think people don't know enough about. Really interesting writer and interesting character, 
and uh, Annas Boudinot Stockton. And, but Russia's wife was half his age. Uh, so he married her when she was 16 and he was about to turn 30. Uh, but it's really interesting. We, we now have their love letters, which weren't, ex didn't exist for a really long time. They were found in the 70s. And um, what's very clear is how he is really important to him that he understands. His wife is so much younger than him. He wants to make sure that she understands he believes in female education. He believes in her education. There's a wonderful letter where he describes, I'm building a library next to the room where we're going to sleep. And I've already purchased the first hundred books that I'm putting in there that we can discuss. So that was the nature of their relationship, but it was, again, he had already gotten that from these women in Philadelphia who had this co-ed salon. And a lot of the doctors were in that salon. What's really interesting is that it was really open, and after the war it was less open, partly because some of the people like Betsy Graham Ferguson had financial setbacks, but uh, feminists note um, that it was a little bit more feminist in the lead up to the war than it was like in the 1780s. And then maybe feminism started coming back again in the 1790s. And Rush was acutely aware of this because his wife and his wife's mom were all were writing letters back and forth about this. They paid a lot of attention to this. I mean, look, Julia Rush had gave birth 13 times, uh, and nine of the children lived. So she was pretty busy being a mom. But it's really interesting. I ended up writing a piece about Smithsonian Magazine just about Julia, uh, how much her intellectual interests. Um, mattered in the family, and how Rush talked about how schooling needed to be for women, too. He was one of the people who helped found the Young Ladies Academy in Philadelphia, which had a curriculum that women would learn pretty much the same things that men learned in school. Uh, some of the ideas had to do they were going to teach their kids, and it was important for wives to be able to teach their kids to be smart kids. Uh, and Rush was, had always felt this was the truth, but after the revolution, Rush started focusing on this idea, what was it going to take to be an American? Now that we are free, now that there's no king, now that there's no state church, how are we going to do the right thing? How are we going to um, become what he referred to as a Republican machine, which is a person whose life is in service of the freedom that they had gotten from being independent and to make sure that uh, the right ideals were put forth. And so how people were going to be taught about these things was incredibly important to him. He started Dickinson College and Franklin and Marshall College for that reason. Franklin College was started as a German-speaking only college to make sure that German immigrants could have their own educations. And he tried to also talk about the second generation of the ideas that Franklin had. Franklin started many institutions during the 1740s, 50s, and 60s to take on certain public ideas that were not going to be taken on by government first fire department, the first library, all private. Um, Rush was involved with Franklin and later after with creating other societies to take care of public health issues, uh, to address racial issues, and uh, the comeback of the abolition society, the comeback of the uh, philosophical society, but also groups that would take care of things. Uh, there was, they picked up something called the Humane Society. Now, the Humane Society was not for animals. The Humane Society was to revive people who had jumped off bridges and were drowning, basically to save people who had tried to take their own lives. Um, and so there was a lot of ideas that the government was not going to be able to take care of these things, that private citizens need to band together and create uh, places where there's free medical care for people who can't afford it. And Rush was very involved in all those kinds of things, as was uh, his wife. I mean, Julia actually helped raise money for the American troops uh, during the war. After Rush had left the government, Julia and Martha Washington and other people got together to raise money uh, so the troops could have, you know, better clothes, better food, stuff like that. When the revolution came, or when 1776 started to approach, how did this young kid, Benjamin, Frank, uh, Benjamin Rush, young hothead, become uh, 
immersed in it? How did he become an integral part of the revolution? Well, in 1774, when Adams and all the rest of them came for the first Continental Congress, Rush was a member of the, the what they call the Sons of Liberty because he had written that proclamation. So he was part of the group that greeted the Massachusetts delegation when they came to Pennsylvania. And they sat them down out in the suburbs and they talked to them about what it was really going to be like when they came to Pennsylvania. And talked to them, you know, Philadelphia had many loyalists. It was one of the places that had the most loyalists, had the most to lose from a revolution. And Rush tried to explain that to them. Adams didn't really know what to make of Rush. He wasn't in the Congress. He was just like a local doctor who had a lot of opinions. And um, they met there. And so during the first Continental Congress, Rush mostly had people over to his house for dinner that mattered. You know, Adams knew him and wrote about him because he served really fine melons at his house. And his house had a wonderful view of the Delaware River. But the doctors were sort of the hosts for the first Continental Congress. By the Second Continental Congress, Rush had already been working with Thomas Paine on Common Sense. Common Sense came out during that time. I, don't, I doubt either he or Paine had any idea how big it would become. And Rush got involved in state politics. And so by the time we were at 1776 and the Declaration of Independence is being written by Jefferson, and Rush is writing the Declaration of Independence for Pennsylvania, because every state had to write their own Declaration of Independence. And Rush was known as a good writer. So in, uh, on the side of his medical practice, he was doing that. Um, we don't really know exactly how it was that we know that Dickinson wouldn't sign the Declaration. He felt that it was too soon. He wasn't against independence. He just thought we were doing it too soon. So eventually he wouldn't sign, and they had an election, and Rush was given his seat so that Rush could sign the Declaration of Independence. And all of a sudden, one day, Rush was in the Congress. And so we can see what he said in the Congress. The things that he spoke in Congress are well documented. And he and Adams became much closer during that time. But he also, because he was a doctor, paid a lot of attention to medical things. And within six months, he was actually wandering away from Congress to be on the battlefield to help. He was a battlefield surgeon. Well, he originally went as a congressman to be uh, with the troops when they were about to cross the Delaware. So he was actually with Washington the night before the crossing of the Delaware, which is why we know what Washington's mood was, because Rush wrote about it in his autobiography. And he's wonderfully descriptive. Luckily, he's, you know, it's very nice to write a book about somebody who himself was a good writer, which they all weren't. Um, so he wrote about being in Washington's tent and how tense Washington was, that he was fumbling with little pieces of paper. One of them fell on the floor, and he saw that it said victory or death on it, which, became, which was the watchword for the uh, crossing. And then Washington sent Rush with orders for the Pennsylvania militia who were downriver from them. You know, there were four groups that were going to cross. Uh, the three other groups couldn't get across initially. Washington's group got across. The Pennsylvania group found out that Washington got across, so they tried again, and they got across. So Rush was in New Jersey during the Battle of Trenton. After the Battle of Trenton, he was in Trenton treating patients. And then he went to Princeton in the aftermath of the Battle of Princeton. So keep in mind, he went to Princeton, and he's there on a battlefield right in front of Nassau Hall which was taken over by the British and bombarded by the Americans to get the British out of it. So this building that Rush revered you know, had been half you know, smashed by us. And he was taking care of patients on the battlefield right in front of where he had gone to college, one of whom was Hugh Mercer, um, a physician and general who Rush had just met in Trenton and had written about just meeting, and then he took care of him. Her, Mercer was the one who surrendered to the British, and they instead bayoneted him seven times after he surrendered, smashed him in the head, and Rush nursed him. And there are many paintings of the Battle of Trenton about Mercer and Rush and Washington. And these experiences never left Rush. He was traumatized by being on the battlefield and seeing all this. Interestingly, at the same time, you know, his father-in-law, who, who was a signer too, Richard Stockton, had been kidnapped by the British during this time. 
So he was dealing with being on the battlefield, the trauma of that. Julia was hidden away to be away from all that. And his father-in-law, they didn't know if he was dead or alive. So it was very dramatic. And then Rush got voted out of Congress because he didn't agree with Thomas Paine's ideas about the Constitution. So he became a Surgeon Gen Washington Surgeon General for the middle department of the war, which was the most active part of the war. And he ran all the hospitals and all the on uh, battlefield medical care during that time. So uh, Battle of Brandywine, uh, Battle of Germantown, all those horrible <laughs> battles he was there in the middle of and was there through that entire campaign of 1777, which if you remember your history, we were getting our asses kicked. So it was not a good time to, to no one knew if we were gonna win. People were very freaked out about what was gonna happen. And Rush uh, made the biggest mistake of his life during this time, which is he, Rush knew all the generals, besides knowing all the doctors, and the generals were bitching to him about their fear that Washington either wasn't putting the right people in charge, or maybe wasn't the right guy himself. And keep in mind that Rush and Washington were friends. And so this gossip was going around. It was not a secret. But Rush started writing about it himself in letters. Uh, he wrote a letter to John Adams about it. He wrote a letter to Patrick Henry, which he did not sign, raising the issue of whether Washington was the right guy, and um, asked Patrick Henry to burn the letter. This was in January. And during this time, he was also fighting with Washington because he felt not enough money was being given to the troops to take care of their medical needs. He and Washington actually made up on the medical needs stuff. Washington approved all this stuff. Um, and Patrick Henry held on to that unsigned letter. He did not know who wrote it, but there was fear that there was a cabal that might try to take out Washington and that this letter might be evidence of that. So Rush uh, does all this. Uh, he and Washington make their peace. Rush actually during this time writes the most, one of the most important things he ever wrote. Uh, a treatise on how to take care of, of medical needs of soldiers, not only in the hospitals, but preventive medicine to make sure they didn't get into the hospital. Suggesting things that are so obvious we can't even believe they were a big deal. One of them was the military haircut, which he thought would help uh, keep lice from people's hair and keep them warm. He also suggested they stop going to the bathroom so close to their tents, that that might have, might have an ability to improve medicine. So this is all happening. And then all of a sudden, two months later, Patrick Henry gives George Washington this letter that Rush wrote. And Washington knows Rush's handwriting. And Washington is crushed by this letter because he and Rush are friends. And you know it's one thing that for generals to be complaining about what's going on in the battlefield, but Rush is a former congressman, he's a friend, and he and Rush, their relationship was never the same. Was, was Benjamin Rush part of the Conway cabal? Well, this is one of the debates. I believe that most historians think he was not, but his letters document the Conway cabal. I mean, the Conway Cabal, I think, is now not thought of as being such a cabal. I think it's just thought of as being a bunch of generals who were freaked out because we were losing so badly, who were complaining and wondering what, was, what, what should happen. Uh, I don't think that the idea that there was a conspiracy and that anybody was going to have a coup, I think that's all made up. But I, there are times in history, maybe you feel differently, we could have a historian uh, you know, slam uh, here to see. I mean, I'm sure people have different ideas. But in general, there's no idea that Rush was trying to take out Washington. He was repeating ideas that uh, were around. What's interesting is that we found an unpublished letter in the letters of Julia Stockton that Rush had written to her during the same time. And I actually reached out to the people at the Washington letters to make sure they had never seen it, and they never had. This letter was even more in-depth about his complaints about Washington. And what was funny about it was that it starts off with him telling Julia, obviously Julia had been telling him to shut up, and because, which she did a lot in his life, trying to get him to just stop talking about things that were going to be dangerous to his practice or his reputation. Because he says, like, you know, I, I, I take your hint and I really appreciate it. I know it's you're saying it because you love me. 
and he says, don't worry, because everybody in the Pennsylvania delegation agrees with me about all these things in Washington, so I'm gonna, I will be happy to be silent. And he underlines the word silent. And then for the next four pages, he goes on and on and on about all his criticisms of Washington as a general. If this letter had been found, and a lot of these letters were found, I mean, you know, mail servers were not so private, um, that would have been treason. And so it's a fascinating letter. It's one of the many letters that we came across during the research for this that were just, it was great to have. I mean, we, we found Julia Rush's letters to Benjamin Rush during the yellow fever epidemic uh, in the 1790s. So Rush's letters to her had been known, but no one had ever seen the letters back. And we found all of them and transcribed all of them and just were able to use them as part of the drama to make it, again, more personal, more powerful, and to mix the things that had been known already in history with things that nobody else did. I mean, I didn't want to write this like, like a history book or say, look at this cool new thing we found. You know, the reader doesn't care about that. The reader just wants to read the best story possible. So in the footnotes, I mean, not the footnotes, no. In the chapter notes at the end, you can see what things are new and what things aren't. But we just wanted to tell a great story. He was as tall as George Washington? I don't know how tall George Washington was. I mean, Rush was considered one of the tallest of the founding fathers. He was tall, lanky, very, considered very good looking. Part of the reason that he had so many girlfriends before he got married. And um, quite a, you know, a very gregarious talker, incredibly charming. Um, and, and quite a know-it-all, which was good for some people. I mean, Abigail Adams, when they came to Philadelphia, she wrote to her sister how happy she was that the Rushes were their friends. Because the Rushes knew everybody, Benjamin Rush knew everything, and uh, he really could help them uh, navigate this city, which uh, Abigail was afraid that people were just going to kiss up to them because he was vice president. So they were saying it's nice to have friends who are real friends, who are real people. Uh, but Rush was, uh, I think, part of the reason that people loved and some didn't like so much is because he was very charismatic. He drew attention. He was a great talker off the top of his head and a very fast writer um, of very engaging prose. Did he quit the army at some point during the Revolution? He did. He was forced to quit by William Shippen. I mean, this is how it all comes around. His, you know, his mentor, tormentor from Philadelphia mm -hmm. becomes his boss. And at a certain point, Shippen says, either fire Rush or fire me. Because they're fighting, and it's all personal. And again, you can see Washington's like going, really? This is what you guys are going to fight about? You know, we're trying to fight like for the freedom of our country. And you're going to have this little petty thing about your, your little Philadelphia fight you've been having for all these years. But they did. And Rush and Morgan <laughs> ended up getting Shippen court-martialed. Again, just out of complete pettiness. And so partly that's why Rush withdrew from public life for the second half of the war. He went home after the British left, he raised his family, he built his practice, he built up his reputation at Pennsylvania Hospital, and then restarted his career once the war was over and people were starting to think about what America was gonna be in the lead up to the Constitution. And that's when he started doing things, first educational things, because he believed that if there wasn't more public education, that the only way we were gonna teach people what it was like to be Americans is if there were better schools, more colleges, and so he started laying out plans for that and then getting involved in the constitutional process. And by then he was more active again, but he did not want to run for public office. I think that he felt that he had been through the political machine once as a Continental Congressman and once as the Surgeon General of the war and that had been political and ugly and that he wasn't that good at the politics and ugliness. And like, unlike a lot of these other people, he didn't have a wife at home who could run a farm and make money for them. He had to work every day to make money and he couldn't afford to be knocked out of his medical practice. And so he, he took on a role of being an advisor to all these people, of being the conscience of the revolution, of doing a ton of writing. 
and making sure that the things that he thought were important got done through other means than him being an elected official. Was he a delegate to the Constitutional Convention? He was not. Um, he, uh, I don't think he had any interest to being. His main interest was to make sure that Franklin was, because Franklin had come home, and uh, he and Franklin were doing a number of things, and Franklin was left out of, the out of that group because the people in the group thought that he was too sick. And, Fra and Rush went to them and said, what are you talking about? This is Benjamin Franklin. You know, he is going to be in the Pennsylvania delegation for the Constitution for this revolution that we've done here. And he forced them to reconsider and include Franklin. I think that he was happy to be on the sidelines. He, he focused some efforts. You know, he was interested in religious freedom issues. He and Jonas Phillips, uh, the head of Mikvah Israel uh, Synagogue in Philadelphia, uh, really, were, Phillips was the one who was most actively involved in making sure that the language, making sure there was a separation of church and state was in the Constitution. He was also getting more actively involved in the African-American community. Uh, so he uh, was involved with the Abolition Society, uh, supporting the Free African Society, and two clergy members, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who were increasingly talking about the fact that the white churches they had been going to, where they had been allowed to preach and where African-Americans had been allowed to worship, were becoming more prejudiced. They were telling black people they should only sit on the outside seats, and then they built one of them built a balcony and told the African Americans they should only sit in the balcony. And so they started talking about whether they needed to start their own churches, African American churches, in the denominations that they had been in. And Rush was one of the earliest supporters of this. Bishop White was incensed with him over this because he thought that he was just against it, and Rush felt this is religious freedom. This is what we fought for. And so he helped. He wrote the plan for the first African-American church in Philadelphia. He helped raise the money for it. He and Jones and Allen were very close. This is the African Methodist Episcopal Church? Well, AME is one of them, but there's also St. George's uh, Methodist Church. They originally were going to start one, and the last minute they started two because Jones and Allen decided they wanted their own churches. But in the build-up to it, they were both together in the same, in the, for the, to build the same church. They were actually building the church and having a roof raising for the church in August of 1793, and they had this amazing dinner um, where the African-American uh, people in the church and the white people who had helped fund the church and helped build the church had a dinner where the white people were served by the African-Americans. Then they got up, and the African-Americans sat down, and the white people served them, it, it, which we know from Russia's letter describing it. Literally the days after that is when doctors started to realize that yellow fever was happening. And so that's part of the reason why uh, the African-American clergy became nurses to the remaining doctors in Philadelphia, many of whom left, Rush stayed, uh, to help them take care of patients and sometimes treat patients. So that's why Absalom Jones and Richard Allen were involved with all that. But the relationship between those whites who were helping fundraise to make sure there could be a black church and the African-American clergy leaders is really interesting, still not as well enough documented as we would like. Uh, but I, I had the great honor of speaking at Mother Bethel Church um, on Martin Luther King uh, birthday weekend a couple weeks ago. And I must say, besides the fact that it's an incredibly beautiful place, uh, to be in that same church that these guys built as this incredible uh, institution that was so shocking even today, and uh, because it really was saying, like, there should be religious freedom, there should be racial freedom. After the um, yellow fever epidemic, uh, some of the African-American nurses were accused of stealing things from white people's houses and overcharging them. And what's amazing is that Jones and Allen then wrote the first book ever copyrighted by African-Americans uh, describing their own experiences during the yellow fever epidemic and then writing an essay trying to explain to white people why they shouldn't be prejudiced against them. 
which is something that I feel like every person of every age should read, and also understand that the direct conversations about why there is prejudice, what people should be doing about it, it's not new. It's a timeless issue in America, and it's not the same as the abolition issue. The abolition issue at that time was almost dead because they had kicked the idea of actually freeing slaves down the road for 20 years. But the issue of racial prejudice was alive and well, and that's what Rush spent most of his time dealing with at the same time to make sure that people who were free weren't taken back into slavery, which is, was happening a lot during the 1790s and was a great fear uh, of people. How did he get interested in uh, the mental health issue? You know, we really don't know. He describes his older brother as dying of a nervous condition when he was quite young. So that's the first issue, time we see him talking about that. And he actually, when he comes back from England, uh, he writes in his diaries that he feels suicidally depressed. And it's the first time he ever realized that people who said they wanted to take their own life, what they really meant. So I think he was always interested in this. I think that he probably had a little bit of it himself. But I think that his main interest was when he came to Pennsylvania Hospital, he saw that almost half, sometimes more than half of the population of the hospital was people with mental illness and people with addiction, which it was very hard to separate that. Uh, and it's also people with epilepsy, all things, brain diseases for which they had no treatments. And so it was very clear as a doctor this was something that was important. Uh, at that time, they, people with mental illness weren't treated as all, at all. They were chained to the floor. Uh, it was believed they couldn't feel hot or cold. And so there were no heaters in their rooms, which were in the basement of Pennsylvania Hospital. And the hospital was charging money for people from the public to come and look at them and jeer them. That's one of the ways they made money. So Rush immediately tried to take care of those things, forced the hospital to stop letting people visit, forced the hospital to buy heaters, uh, but then started giving talks to the medical staff, later a, a, a very famous talk at the Philosophical Society, laying down these ideas. These were medical illnesses. We needed to treat them with the medicine that we have as it develops, and we need special places to take care of people with these illnesses, and we need to respect them. We need to respect the people who treat them. And uh, this is just something that he was interested in doing. Here's what's fascinating. I, again, people in Russia's life probably thought that he maybe was bipolar himself. There's some evidence of that. But what we do know is that his oldest son, who was a physician um, and who had certainly some anger management issues, but we don't know much more than that, uh, and wrote his master's thesis when he got his medical degree on suicide. Uh, his son uh, was a Navy doctor. He got into an argument with his best friend on a boat docked in New Orleans. They fought about a line in Shakespeare. Uh, his friend challenged him to a duel. John Rush, Rush's son, expected to shoot in the air and just have the whole thing go away. He was told at the last minute that his friend was going to shoot to kill, and so he shot to kill, and he killed his best friend, who fell into his arms. We have eyewitness descriptions of this from the other sailors that were there. And not long after, John Rush became floridly mentally ill, uh, psychotic, trying to kill himself many, many times, uh, interestingly, the doctors didn't want to initially tell Dr. Rush because they were, like, embarrassed. Many of them were former students of Dr. Rush's. They didn't want to go back to their mentor and say, hey, your son is mentally ill and we can't, feed, we can't fix him. What kind of doctors did you train? So they treated him in New Orleans for several years before they told the family. And eventually he was so sick that they couldn't do anything else. John Rush was sent back to Philadelphia. At that time, Pennsylvania Hospital was known as the only place in the country to get medical care for mental illness. They hoped that Dr. Rush would be able to save him. Rush wrote to Adams about his unbelievable feeling of seeing his son looking like a biblical madman with his hair grown out and his nails grown out, but he was sure that he could treat him. And within six months, he realized that he couldn't. 
And John Rush lived for the next 30 plus years at Pennsylvania Hospital. He was the most famous mentally ill person in America uh, for decades. So Benjamin Rush was interested in mental health before his son? Yes, and, and, and what's interesting is that he, over the years, was constantly trying to get Pennsylvania Hospital to spend more money on this. He actually convinced him to build a second building, the 9th Street building, just for the treatment of mental health and addiction, which is the first building in, any, you know, in Europe or in America that was created just for you know, what people call moral treatment, modern treatment, um, in the 1790s. And then later, when his son became ill, he actually wrote another letter saying, you know, I've been saying this to you for years. We have to spend more and more money on this because it's really important. And now that God has seen to it to have one of my family members involved with it, it's even more important. And that's why um, the last thing that Rush did uh, that mattered to him was that he wrote the first textbook on mental illness ever published in America, which was published only months before he died. He did that, and the other thing that he did during his last year and a half was after the election of 1800, his two closest friends among the founding fathers, Adams and Jefferson, weren't speaking. And so, uh, and Adams for a long time didn't speak to him either. He and Adams started communicating again after five years. They had this epic letter writing campaign, which is actually is a complete revision of the entire history of America, plus their own relationships. Two cranky old founders being incredibly honest with each other for eight years of letters, hundreds of letters. I couldn't resist recreating the dialogue between them because it was so personal, so fascinating. And part of what was going on in it was that Rush was trying to help Adams with his depression. Um, and, but also he was trying to manipulate Adams and Jefferson, who he was still in touch with. You know, Jefferson had, had arranged for him to be the medical correspondent for the Lewis and Clark expedition. He and Jefferson still talked about science. He was working both of them to try to get them to be friends again. Because he said, if political differences separate the two real founders of the country, and he considered Adams and Jefferson to be, at an intellectual level, the people who had actually created the idea of America. That if basic politics were enough to drive these two people apart, what was the future of America going to be like? You know, so it was really important to him that he referred to them as the North and South Poles of the American Revolution, and that he would want to do anything he could to get them back together. For years, he sent them letters trying to convince them. One time he sent Adams a letter saying that he had a dream, and in the dream he had uh, been read a history book from the future, and the history book in the future described the day that Adams and Jefferson had gotten back together, and that day was coming pretty soon, and uh, he, anything he could do, and finally he convinced them to start writing to each other. He was afraid, because they were older than him, that one of them would die before they made up. In reality, Rush died, and they ended up writing letters uh, for the next, you know, 13 years. I mean, they died, you know, in 1826 on the 50th anniversary of the ratification of the Declaration of Independence, so 13 years after Rush. They picked up the correspondence that Rush and Adams and Jefferson had been having, and uh, some of their kids were involved in it too, John Quincy Adams, Richard Rush. And th this correspondence creates a whole alternative history of the American Revolution and of the relationship between these people during their older years. And it's some people have paid some attention to it, but it's not often pointed out that it's, it's a unique thing. It's like a play you know, between these people at a different point in their life, not during the Declaration time, not during the Constitution time, but during the time when they were really afraid that America had blown it. Is it... Is it uh, Easy reading? I mean, can you just sit down and read through it, or is it kind of a tough slog reading no, these No, it's, it's actually really them. fascinating, and because of, you know, do you know about Founders Online, the, the service that the uh, National Archives has? where no. you can National Archives has an online service where every letter that's been transcribed that's in one of the letters projects can be read online for free in real time. 
and you can read the transcription. So in the old days, you had to go to one archive. They would, might have the letters from one side of the thing, then go to another archive to read the letters back. But now, for the, for the main people, Rush is in the archive, but he's not one of the founders that counts right now. Um, you can go back and forth and read the letters. It's utterly fascinating. The difference is that they're all accurate the way they were written. So Rush had better grammar than Adams. So Adams' letters, the more accurate they become, the more misspellings there are, and the more words you have to figure out. But no, it's utterly fascinating, and it totally comes across the passion in them, the family issues, and how they're intertwined with the um, America issues. Did uh, Benjamin Rush ever reconcile with George Washington? Uh, they were friendly enough, in part because Washington and Mary, George and Mary Washington were friends with his mother-in-law. And I think she kind of worked it to the point where it was okay. But what we discover is that Washington always held a grudge about this letter. And not long before he died, he made sure that a historian knew about it so that when histories were written about him, and in fact, Justice Marshall wrote the, this big famous history of George Washington, and he replicated the letter because Washington made sure that it was there. Marshall did rush the favor of crossing out the names so that people wouldn't know it was him. But Rush was very aware that if this letter got published, it would hurt his reputation. And the fact that he and uh, Adams would often criticize Washington. I mean, he and Adams were both, one, they understood that the, in America with no king, fame was going to be the thing that mattered. So they couldn't believe how famous George Washington and Benjamin Franklin were. Um, and they also couldn't believe how famous they weren't. Um, so they would compare, complain a lot about how fame was a bad thing. Uh, and that the whole story of America, you know, Adams would write this to Rush quite often. The whole story of America is going to be that, you know, Benjamin Franklin, you know, flew his kite and electrified a key, and and he, in it he, you know, he birthed George Washington, and together they did the whole American Revolution, fought all the wars, wrote all the laws, blah blah blah. That's the way it was going to go, and he couldn't believe that. Um, and you know, we now consider Adams a major figure, but you know, if you talked about people in American history a hundred years ago, it was Franklin and Washington. I mean, Adams has had a, you know, has been added, and Jefferson, our understanding of them, have been added more in the last 50 years. Do you have another book in the works? No, I'm just recovering from this one. Well, this one that we've been talking about is Rush, the biography of Benjamin Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. Stephen Fried, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.